podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box to this episode. Patreon is a monthly subscription and you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. I'm Rania Shatah and this is the Beirut Banyan. I'm currently the president of the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. I'm very happy to be on this excellent podcast. Uh, Ronnie, you do excellent work. Uh, and uh, uh, kudos uh, to you. And hello to all the listeners. The situation in Lebanon is really the coming to an end of what you might call the Second Republic, the period since the end of the Civil War, the establishment of the Ta'af Agreement, its imperfect implementation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the emergence of uh, sort of this coexistence between a state and an economy that's trying to sort of develop, uh, but at the same time having uh, Hezbollah and a completely different uh, regional uh, agenda that doesn't at all match uh, the agenda of the other parts or sectors of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also uh, was a three decades in which uh, deficit financing and kind of a rentier economy became, I mean, it started off as a necessary and potentially not a bad idea right after the Civil War. Of course, we had to borrow money for some reconstruction and so on, but the assumption was within a decade, economic growth would have taken off and it would have been a manageable debt that we could have carried and paid off. Mm -hmm. Uh, But obviously that did not pan out and for... Uh, uh, two decades after it became clear that the economic plan was not working, we continued to borrow at the same rate. Uh, and you know the whole story of you know the banks buying into it and all of that. Sure. Uh, so uh, uh, we are at the end of a of a kind of a failed period of three decades since uh, 1990, uh, and the collapse obviously uh, is uh, almost. You know, firstly, we saw the economic collapse, which has three elements, uh, public finances, uh, you know, being at an end, which puts pressure on the Lebanese currency, the private Mm -hmm. banking system also uh, coming, you know, being at an end or being bankrupt itself. So you have both the government going bankrupt and the private banks, which is kind of rare in other countries. And you have an economy which already was, uh, you know, sputtering and not really producing anything. Uh, coming to coming to a halt as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the economic side, which was financing this political elite uh, uh, and was buying the consent of much of the public, uh, in 2019 uh, that began to collapse and it turned into effectively a deep political crisis mm-hmm. where, uh, uh, you know, as we all know, the uprising started in October uh, and identified very clear political and economic uh, dysfunctions in the country, and it's calling for wholesale uh, change. Now it so happens that over over and above all of this, we have once in a century uh, a pandemic. Uh, the last one was in 
another very terrible time for Lebanon and uh, around World War I, uh, we had the famine, followed by the Spanish flu, which I think our ancestors simply called the Ta'un, or they had other names for these yeah. illnesses. Uh, right. So uh, obviously this pandemic uh, uh, has shut down whatever was left uh, of the economy. So yeah, this is no normal crisis. This is no normal situation uh, for Lebanon. When we look at uh, the Middle East or the Arab countries, I measure it somewhat differently. Uh, and of course, there's you know great variations country to country. But if one wanted to generalize, uh, the 1950s and 60s, for many of the Arab countries, were periods of hope, of revolution, uh, either one party, uh, sort of forward-looking parties or militaries taking over power. Uh, uh, changing the economies, building the elements of a welfare state, uh, doing a lot, you know, building schools, building hospitals. There was a lot of development that took place. Uh, and the, if you want the social contract function for a while, because indeed many of these states carried their societies forward, uh, and they were legitimized by strong ideologies of either Arab nationalism or local nationalism or socialism, things of that nature, and that uh, began to unravel in the 70s and 80s when the economic project, again, of these countries, which had enabled basic levels of uh, economic development and infrastructure, uh, you know, uh, came up against high demographic growth, inability to diversify the economy or create a really vibrant, vibrant private sector, as well as the collapse of the ideological component of these of these states. So the economy was beginning to yes. weaken and their ideology was weakening and they basically turned into corrupt police states, which is, you know, kind yes. of different. Uh, and this in 2010 and 2011, those pressures of demography, low legitimacy, uh, the internet and mobile, you know, mobile phones, which both uh, informed people and enabled them to mobilize, has led to basically 11, revo 11 uprisings yes. in, in the Middle East. Uh, and you'd say and the majority of countries have had major uprisings. Yeah. Uh, this is unusual for the Middle East. You know, I, I like that you've, in a way, you spelled out a few things. I'm going to unlayer them one by one. The first is that in, in the dozens of conversations I've had in terms of how to interpret October 17, I like the way you phrase it, which is the end of the Second Republic. And that is a profound sort of statement because, in a way, it's not just saying that the end of the civil war or the end of the post-war order. In a, in a way, it's also saying it's the end of Lebanon as both of us know it. And going back a, a bit further, you're talking about the Spanish flu and, and the famine and the century of, of, uh, of change in the Middle East. And, and within that, you, you address the political the economic and, and in a way, the the dignity of the average person trying to achieve something better. Mm -hmm. On a, on a let, let's remove analysis for a moment and just say, you yourself, as somebody who has seen shades of this before, not not the way we're experiencing it now, but shades of demands for accountability, or if you will, serious uh, attempts at sovereignty. If you go back 15 years ago to March 2005. Does it feel like this will usher in something different, or is that still is it still too early to actually project and see what this will look like down the road? Uh, well, the way I think about it is not 
sort of the matter of projection or prediction, mm. but uh, the issue of possibility and action. So the way I would put it, yes, it is possible. Uh, it is within, you know, the capacity of, of the Lebanese yes. uh, to create some fundamental changes. Some others they cannot. So I will unpack, you know, uh, how I see it. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 you know, you start with the very hard problem of Hezbollah, uh, uh, which is part of a vast geopolitical crisis. Uh, so I don't see a capacity uh, for the Lebanese public and the current, you know, unrealistic options to resolve that problem. Mm -hmm. uh, that's mm -hmm. unfortunate. That's going to be with us for a long time. And unless something happens in Tehran, basically. Yeah. Uh, so I put that aside. But two or three things that we can affect. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is uh, the economy. Uh, yes. Uh, the economy was built on this, you know, you know we've, everybody's talked about it, this false uh, project was built on deficit financing and interest mm -hmm. rates and mm -hmm. money flows without real concern for the real value of the pound, job creation in Lebanon, uh, you know, all of that. So right. it might be even without much willpower on our end, uh, uh, you know, after all the pain uh, washes through the system. And during that time, obviously, what's most important is that we protect the small the middle class, the lower class. If the rich people are in pain, that's great. Yes. Uh, I, I worry about where the pain is going to be inflicted. But that's, that's kind of a transitional concern. Mm -hmm. uh, if, you know, once uh, 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 this washes through, uh, A, we will no longer be able to rely on borrowing, uh, which might be a healthy thing. Yes. Uh, so whatever uh, production or money we make, we'll have to make it by actually producing something, a service or a good, uh, or a real, you know, a real value. Mm -hmm. That is the right place to start rebuilding our economy and our relationship to our economy. Uh, it also will be at a time when the Lebanese currency, after sadly much pain, will be in its sort of market value so that labor and investment uh, could, uh, could move again. That links then to the political side of things. And there are two aspects to the political side. Uh, one is, you know, we talked about the Second Republic and so on. So one says, well, what's the Third Republic? Uh, right. meaning what constitutional changes, how do we change the system. I'm going to put that aside for one moment and mm -hmm. talk about, if you want, the politics of the system. That, mm -hmm. okay, the system we have has good points, has bad points on paper as a system. The fact of the matter, though, is that uh, we have a ruling class, I dare say, elected and re-elected again and again by the public, Yes. Which is uh, t terrible, which is yes. corrupt, which is, you know, all the words you want to say. Uh, what we had in October and moving forward is an awakening of the public that, uh, you know, wait a minute, uh, <laughs> these are the wrong set uh, of rulers. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, pressure in two areas. One is that now the protest movement or whatever you want to call it, which we need to strengthen and maintain and sustain, yes. at least is a pressure, is a watchdog, is putting pressure on the ruling class, already brought down one government, uh, is, is putting pressure on this government to try to keep it doing the right thing. All of that is very useful. And obviously for a proper economic development, uh, you know, all the things of, you know, fighting corruption and 
having proper planning, proper, you know, a strong judiciary, all of that needs to be done in politics, as it were, to liberate and empower uh, uh, the economy. So there's a lot of connection there. Uh, and also in the politics of it, uh, uh, what I fear is, or what I've been talking about a lot, is the need to turn from a protest movement to an organized and sustained national political movement yes. that can actually contest and win elections. Uh, that when we say, كلون يعني كلون, fine, uh, who's, you know, they're not going to walk away. Uh, we do have elections in the country. Uh, they are winnable, uh, but they're very, you know, like any election, it's not easy to win an election. Right. Uh, but that's where the movement has to go. Uh, just a few days ago, we hosted a meeting here at our institute and brought in a number of experts from around the world mm -hmm. by Skype, because now nobody can travel. <laughs> But yeah, we looked at other examples, you know. Well, obviously not the first country who's had big protest movements, but right. Uh, right. trying to look at lessons learned. You know, you look at Ukraine, they had a massive protest movement, which managed at the end of the day uh, to win uh, the presidency, to win parliamentary elections. Mm -hmm. uh, you have Venezuela, which also was a protest and a coalition of a few opposition parties that also won the election. Right. Uh, you have the Green Movement in Europe, which was started as a protest movement, but they ended up becoming an actual party and being a permanent presence. So we're, we're trying to see uh, in different countries, how did they manage to do this? Uh, and there are a lot of common problems. You know, there's a problem of, uh, you know, lack of real unity, which is fine. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the coalition in, in uh, Venezuela had 32 different parties. And yes, they managed to work together and to agree and to win parliament and to do all of that. Uh, uh, so we have that as well. We have to figure out how to be together, even though we are different, but we agree on some things. And that's, that's a key challenge. Yes. And the second challenge is, uh, you know, do, should you have leaders or you shouldn't have leaders? Mm -hmm. Some people say, you know, we don't want to, if we put leaders, they will be either co-opted or something will go wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, yet, at the end of the day, if you're going to run for elections, uh, you know, certain candidates will run for elections. Right. Uh, so a lot of common issues uh, uh, from other countries. So come back to my point is that politically, we have a historic opportunity to, to, to change the politics of the country, but it will require our own homework. Uh, you know, it's not going to be given to us. I fully agree. The Lebanese, at the end of the day, are the people voting in the same political parties, the same politicians. So there is definitely responsibility there. I'm going to, though, just ask you a tangential question. And that kind of goes into the other issues, at least when it comes to the de potential development of a new political party, or even, for that matter, the, the risk of having someone lead the, the, the movement. Mm -hmm. is, is there a sense, at least from your own from your own perspective, that options that are available and we can agree that they're either they're shades of bad, bad options. I mean, at, at mm -hmm. the moment, there aren't any great uh, opportunities to elect decent politicians, given given what's available today. Is, is that a consequence 
of the geopolitical quagmire that you discussed earlier, which is, and, and I, I agree with you as well, the the uh, the larger issues of this confrontation that Hezbollah is a part of, Hezbollah is instrumental, that the answers to Hezbollah, unfortunately, will not be answered in Lebanon. But is that component the part of the reason why Lebanese tend to reelect the same uh, the same familiar faces we both know? I would say clearly no. That's, okay. They're not connected. That's not the reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be a particular problem to be, you know, very direct about it. In the Shiite community, Hezbollah monitors it. You know, it's, it's hard. You know, it's, it's a different, that's a special case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in other districts and regions and communities, if you want, in the country, uh, are, you know, and it's not new, you know, are habits in elections of going for, you know, traditional families, for a patronage system. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, we we still do politics, sort of, at least electoral politics, the old traditional way. Right. Uh, and it's, it is the case that the modern, the civic, the Lebanese uh, new energy, and it's even new from the 90s and so on, Mm-hmm. Uh, has not uh, uh, succeeded, has not maybe tried that hard. Uh, I think now, you know, as of October, we've woken up to the idea that, wow, leaving this to the traditional politicians and not bothering about it was certainly a bad idea. Uh, right, uh, right. So uh, unlike, let's say, the 1950s or 60s, in Lebanon, where you had parties and organization and mobilization, we didn't have that in the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s. We're yes. just waking up that having a country without real political engagement and accountability from the people is a really bad idea. Right. Uh, and the reality is, no, there's nothing to prevent us uh, to organize ourselves uh, to to uh, uh, figure out, you know, as I said, we looked at other countries, uh, how to organize a national movement that is, yes, pluralistic. There's maybe some leftists and some liberals, and that's fine. But we mm-hmm. all agree on some fundamentals. Uh, uh, to a, uh, organize that for a sustained national political movement that w- will be with us indefinitely, you know, for decades. That's how right. we have to think. Right. Uh, uh, rather than, you know, we don't like the guys in power, we're going to protest, you guys go away, and something good should come, you know, like should happen. You know, we have to build a kind of a sustained political structure, and this structure has to, A, engage the population. It cannot remain an elite group of civil society groups that meet and issue, come to, you know, protest. We have to integrate more tens of thousands of citizens who mm-hmm. must be given a voice, I've suggested, for example, that why don't we do like uh, like what we might call primary uh, elections in, in the Qada'as of Lebanon, have mm-hmm. the Iraq with all of its go to one Qada' for two weeks, uh, register the people who want to be part of it, uh, uh, people who want to be put forward as candidates, let them be vetted, let them make you know their case. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of a year of such activity, uh, we will have integrated in every qada of Lebanon. Citizens would be engaged. Their opinions would have been taken into account. 
uh, some yeah. you know young leaders would have begun to emerge and i call them rather than call them leaders they are representatives of a movement they don't lead the movement right they, uh, if there's local elections they or if there's parliamentary elections they answer to the movement but we need to begin producing alternative leaders and not just complaining about the current ones so so if i understood if i understand you right it, in a way the it, the population can divorce the the facts on the ground which is that the, the the current crop that has sustained itself for decades now uh the fact that it's a either a direct or indirect outcome of the geopolitical shifts Lebanon has experienced in in the last decades that they can divorce the geopolitics from genuine reform from within even if it's on the on the smallest level whether it's uh picking up the trash on the corniche or getting your municipality to do a better job or electricity or th- things that are very basic that that both can happen at the same time if i understood you right yeah, yeah. an awakened society that's has you know putting forward good leaders holding them accountable mm-hmm. Yes. It doesn't mean, you know, we're going to be living in a nice neighborhood uh, right. or we don't have to worry about Syria or Israel or Iran or Russia or U.S. You know, every country lives in, a, in, a, in an environment. We have also another thing, which is Hezbollah, which I talked about. But uh, there's nothing to prevent uh, the public from selecting uh, good leaders who... Yes, they'll have to deal with the realities, but at least they should be dealing with it from a good uh, initiative, you know, from a good knee, from a good, you know, right. uh, uh, moral position. They don't have to be the terrible and corrupt leaders that we have today, nor mm. do I at all accept the claim that, ah, we have corrupt leaders because, I don't know, uh, Iran imposed them on us. I mean, the Shiite community and the presence of Hezbollah is different, but we sustain these leaders. We are part of, we've been part of this. We, and I say it broadly, they win yes. elections, they visit everybody. Uh, you know, it's only recently that we've discovered this was a bad way to go about it. And, right, right. Uh, so, yeah, my answer is clear that, in, you know, again, Shiite community and where Hezbollah is physically very, you know, jealous about the representation of its community, that's a difficult thing. Mm-hmm. But everywhere else, uh, no, I don't think there is that, you know, huge geopolitical uh, obstacle at least to do the things that are domestic, right? You know, so uh, so in other words, the corruption, the economy, yes, public health. Yes. You know, so so in other words, their their accommodation of Hezbollah is separate from their accountability towards their own population. But these are two different uh, issues. And They're different but, things. But, and why couldn't you have a decent, let's say, president yeah. or prime minister? Okay, he has to, you know, Hezbollah. He can't, you know. Mm-hmm. I can't see how he's going to remove them, you know. But mm-hmm. it doesn't mean, oh, I can't remove them, therefore I must be corrupt or I must be, you know. Right. There's no connection between Yes, them, right, right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that, that actually gets me to the second point. And I, I like that you described the, the necessity at some point for organization. And Absolutely. the way that you can have a, uh, a genuine desire for change and you can have uh, momentum and you can have hundreds of thousands, millions of people taking to the streets in ways that were very profound. But that doesn't necessarily mean a new political force per se. You need to have structure. And I, I wanted true. to get that's an interesting subject that I've had. I've had many discussions around that. And I think it's a it's it's a debate worth having. 
Lebanon in the last 15 years or so, whenever, and, and you hinted at it before, whenever someone emerged as a voice of the moment, and we, we both know who these names are, and you can go back to 2005, those names were very visible and on the streets and sort of chanting with the protesters. These, these people were eliminated one by one. And today you have a very fluid, very dynamic, youth-driven, and and I I hesitate to be to sound too romantic here, but it's really a uh, it's so young and so inspirational and so online that I find myself a dinosaur at times, uh, seeing mm-hmm. what's happening on the streets. So there's a connectivity that I've never seen before. I mean, we, we, you hinted at the European example, and that is a recent example, at least with Ukraine. And if you go back three decades before, you ha- we have uh, the Iron Wall falling. We have Eastern Europe sort of uh, leading the charge for, you know, yeah, these Poland. Yeah, the Solidarity Movement. In Poland, oh, and which was the Velvet Revolution. Yeah. And we, we, you know, the names, we know them, Václav Havel of Prague. And these are, these are very, uh, very inspirational moments, too. I, I'm going to maybe jump the gun here that Lebanon did have those kinds of moments, but they were curtailed. I think our March 2005 movement, I think that was reflective of the of the Eastern European model, where people are calling on the old order to fall. In our case, it was the Syrian indirect occupation of Lebanon. But this time around, I, I don't know of other examples to lean on. I see sometimes in Hong Kong, people act a similar way and they exchange ideas quickly online. You have shifting dynamics. Um, perhaps to a degree, you see bits of it in South America too. Uh, but I, I don't know any sort of classic example that Lebanon could learn from in terms of how to keep the fluidity but at the same time, not let that just sort of spill out into nothing, letting it form into something sustainable. And I, this is well, where... Let's, yeah, let's um, I mean, unpack it a bit. I mean, yeah. uh, the 2005 obviously was a, a different thing. It mm-hmm. was a sort of national revolt against a foreign occupation, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which in which basically the Lebanese oligarchy, let's put it, you know... <laughs> was the hero. You know? yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 and, you know, we know how that turned out. And now, uh, yeah. uh, so it was a revolt against a foreign power, and it enabled and empowered a part of, let's say, the Lebanese oligarchy as the heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, uh, 14 years later, in 2019, it's not a revolt against a foreign power. I mean, even the complaints about Hezbollah uh, it didn't turn into, you know, anti-Iran, a bit like Iraq and so on. Right. The Lebanese public kind of limited its its focus a little bit more like the Arab Spring countries and said, forget about, you know, Iran and Israel and all of that. Okay, we have our positions, but we've just realized that our own politicians are disastrous and we must remove them. So it's a very domestic, okay, uh, uh, revolution and complaint. Now, you also move and say, okay, well, fine. What is it this revolution would like to achieve? Mm-hmm. It would like to remove these people from office mm-hmm. and either take their place or have good people take their place, okay? That's politics as usual, you know. Uh, you know, that's what electoral politics is. Public, right. you know, doesn't like this group of rulers. Other people form a new movement. Absolutely. If they're successful. They organize. They campaign. 
they may or may not win. يعني, but it's it's not rocket science. It's, mm. it's the ABCs of uh, of, elect, of of politics in a country which at the end of the day doesn't require a coup uh, to win a seat in parliament or to change the prime minister. It requires uh, you to organize uh, the public to contest and win an election. Uh, yep. uh, and of that, there are, you know, that's, there are dozens of examples of that. That's what happens all the time in every country that has elections. Uh, uh, I think we are, and there's, there's still kind of a distance uh, in, in a sort of Lebanese consciousness between, you know, the things that we want and the path we have to take to simply get to where decisions are made and make those things happen. It's not rocket science. Yeah. Uh, but it, there is still uh, a strange kind of antipathy uh, to, uh, you know, the stuff that needs to be done. It's not uncommon. You know, you see it in other countries in the U.S. You know, you have the, uh, what was that movement against Wall Street? Because, uh, oh, uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street. Uh, Occupy Wall Street. Similar yes. movement. Uh, it, it took, a, a, you know, a 78-year-old uh, guy from Vermont to tell, you know, to work with these young people <laughs> and say, come on, guys, if you want change, we have to organize and we have to vote. It took a 78-year-old, okay? So, uh, and it's doable. Yani, yeah. The guy came out of nowhere and almost won the election. And right. Trump did it in a different way, you know. Yes, he he yes. saw people were pissed off and angry. Yeah. Uh, he put himself. Uh, we shouldn't be in this position in Lebanon and know this amazing generation Like you said, you know, but there's no figures or there were some figures in the past. We shouldn't wait for any figures. Uh, uh, we should be able, as Lebanese in 2020, uh, we are highly educated, highly capable people. We must admit we're very bad at doing things together. Uh, we have huge egos. We are, you know, do a lot of things. We're not great at this. Mm -hmm. And we've relied on the oligarchy for a century. Yeah. We, don't, you know, we I, don't generally do politics. But can I... Can I want to just d d dive a little deeper into this point here. Mm. Uh, so th is this a, in, in your opinion, is this a, f a fear of intimidation? And in other words, that the violence may eliminate a natural leader? Or is it really just a lethargic uh, way of just the way Lebanon has been for so long? That this inter it's neither. You know, no, it's neither. It's neither. It's yani Uh, uh, you know, uh, we all know in, in the days of confrontation with the Assad regime and Iran in 2005, uh, we know, you know, Rafil Hariri was killed, uh, Gibran uh, uh, Twaini, Samir Asir. We know that. Uh, we know that fear. Mm -hmm. uh, and we must acknowledge it. But we are, you know, also to say clearly that was going up against Iran and the Assad regime. This revolution happens not to be about that. Mm. So already that's a different context. Mm. Secondly, we should not be looking for a leader. Uh, right. That's the wrong, that's what's wrong in a way with our situation. We wait kind of for a leader. We don't want, we want to organize ourselves as yes. a vibrant, awakened civil and political society and be aware that as part of our job, to change the country, at some point, we also have to choose representatives who represent us 
yes. uh, and help them get elected. Nobody should be our leader, and we should not be followers. We should right. be part of a movement where we have a voice and we engage, and that's that's the future. That's the way to go in any yes. you know country that's hoping to be sustainably democratic, not just democratic by name. The current Taif system, if you want, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with all the you know the current constitution. Uh, as it is with the distributions, you know, as they do it by community and so on. The fact of the matter is that if the Lebanese public was active and awakened and uh, putting forward and choosing excellent people to fill the key posts in this system, Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I put the Hezbollah problem in a separate thing because they run their communities differently. But uh, in the other generally communities, and even to some degree in the Shiite community, but let's let's try to you know separate the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in this system, as you know, you could have you know a, a fantastic president, an excellent prime minister, an excellent cabinet in most of its. Uh, positions with good people. Uh, don't forget we have municipalities. We should have moved to also administrative decentralization. So at the Qada level, we have stuff happening. So even mm-hmm. in this system, things could be 100% better. So we have to right. recognize that. So within the, that, the, within the that, confines of the current system. Yeah, okay. Within mm-hmm. the confines, you know, I often yes. say... You know, our system has some similarities to the Swiss system. If you uh, 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 take our, our politicians and our public and move them to Switzerland and run in the Swiss system, we'd ruin it. Okay? <laughs> and if you bring nice people and active because of the Swiss and bring them here in our system, it would be beautiful. So and what I'm trying to say right. is uh, in, in political systems, uh, behavior matters uh, Accountability matters. Mm-hmm. Yani, uh, uh, you know, look at the French system. You could elect a horrible person. Right. Say, great right. system, but, you know, look what happened. Or look at Germany under Hitler. Systems sure. are by themselves don't dictate outcomes. Right, uh, right. So, so I come back to the summary point. Even with uh, this system, uh, uh, it could be a hundred times better. And when people say, ah, this system makes them be corrupt. Why are they? No, it doesn't. They are corrupt uh, and they you know you could be corrupt in, a, in, a, in a, you know any system you can be corrupt so sure first thing we need to understand is w- there is there's a lot there's we can do so much even with even before thinking about the system uh, Hala, okay. when you come to the system yeah uh, 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 yeah I mean the number of the few issues one is indeed this is you know a system partly built on assured representation for communities. These are communities, uh, 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 you know, who are in an extremely uh, unstable region mm-hmm. uh, where, uh, you know, each of the three big communities, but also throw in other smaller communities, the fear of genocide is real. The fear of extermination is real. Yeah. You know, these are not like we're not living in Switzerland. We're not living in Western Europe. So this is all, you know, old stuff. Right. If anything, it's gotten much worse in the last seven, eight years. Yeah. Yes. So this is not a joke. 
uh, and it is I, I can't find a realistic way to convince large communities that no, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, you don't need to be assured some kind of representation that mm -hmm. that's not an issue. It is an issue. Yes. Uh, yes. Now the ways to move forward uh, uh, is is a number of things. Uh, one is we need to decentralize much more than we do. Lebanon remains a highly centralized system. Mm -hmm. And it's done that on purpose so that you cannot do anything unless you talk to Nabih Berri and Gibran Basile and uh, whoever happens to be the finance minister and whoever happens to be the prime minister because that's the way they want it. Yes. Uh, but we need a lot of administrative decentralization. So the issue of communal uh, power sharing so on is less of a problem. And Interesting. There's no reason I need to do a whole national thing to fix my school or to uh, establish a environmental processing plant or whatever. We need to decentralize much more. Secondly, we need yeah. to strengthen our judiciary. Individuals are basically, they're afraid. They're not protected. Being not protected, they go to their communal leader because the state doesn't protect you. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. judiciary isn't effective. Uh, so you got to strengthen the judiciary. Uh, 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 then you get to the issue, like the real problem currently, one of the real problems uh, in the post-Taif state is not that, you know, power is shared. Mm -hmm. We have to share power. Yeah, there's no how you share it is a good question. Uh, but it has to be shared to a large degree. What mm -hmm. The problem that we are facing is that uh, we created an executive branch which uh, is uh, which is not localized anybody anywhere. Yani, mm -hmm. meaning uh, the president is not the CEO, the prime minister is not the CEO. Right. Uh, the the, uh, the Taif agreement says the council mujtamiatan is, is the, the CEO, CEO, which is yes. nonsense. Right. Uh, that means two very serious things. Mm. One, that nobody in the executive branch can actually get anything done. Nobody. Right, right. At the end of the day, somebody's got to be in charge. Uh, like any, if you got a good prime minister into office, a great person into the office, he sat there, he wants to issue a decision, he can't. Yes, uh, yes. If you get a great president, he comes to the office, wants to do something great, he can't. Mm -hmm. So we've created a, a, a sort of a, you know, a, a dysfunctional, this, uh, you know, power is so distributed that there is no executive office. That means nothing gets done, and right. we see that. Can't pick up the garbage, can't manage our debt, can't, because no, nobody can do it. The second thing is that if nobody can do it, then nobody can be held accountable. Yes. Which is true. Can you blame really Saad Hariri? No. You know, maybe, but he says, well, you know, I tried, but it's really not up to him. He needs a vote in the cabinet, but the vote in cabinet goes back to is Nabih Birri happy, is Gibran Basila. Yani, yeah, 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 yeah. neither able to do, nor is the public able to hold accountable. Right. Uh, uh, and we need an effective executive. Uh, so that's a, a key problem of the Taif agreement. So, so in a way, if, if, if we look back a few years from now and describe this as a revolution, in the Lebanese context, it's really just about reforming the intercommunal power-sharing arrangement. 
that that's really what's at stake. It's just making it function for the first time, really, since the civil war ended in a way that that at least at least allows Lebanese to hold their politicians to account. And that's really what the challenge is at the end of the day. It's letting people challenge and reform as opposed to upending and overthrowing the sectarian beast. So in other words, the sectarian... The way I would look at it and know, okay, there's 1975 civil war. Part of it was about was about power sharing. There was whole communities who felt they weren't represented. They didn't have a say. And they Mm -hmm. were right. Mm -hmm. This revolution is not about power sharing. Mm -hmm. Power Mm -hmm. sharing might come into it. Maybe, you know, because of power sharing, some people say, then there's corruption. I, I, you know, look at it much more simply. Mm -hmm. That what's in front of us is is not that complicated. What's in front of us is we are a society which is awakened to the need that we want uh, a new, clean, and responsible politics, that we want uh, a good, clean, effective representatives and officials in government. Mm -hmm. We are at a moment in our history uh, where that is available to us. And if you go back to when the Syrians ran Lebanon, it wasn't possible. And you had Muqabarat and every Qada. Yes. They ran the elections. They managed everything. Yes. This is not the case today. Mm-hmm. It might be the case, again, I say in areas where Hezbollah is really dominating. Mm-hmm. But uh, sorry, Hezbollah doesn't run elections in Kisirwin or Metin or uh, Tripoli or, or, you know, all of the... It doesn't, like the Syrians mm-hmm. used to do. Mm-hmm. So we have a huge margin of, uh, call it, you know, ability or freedom or kaza to organize contest, put forward a new crop of, of, of leaders and get them into office. So that's our to-do list. And yes. someday we have to rethink the Ta'af agreement, Arasi. But this is not the current crisis. Plus, to be realistic, it's not doable. Yani, because that gets us to something else. Yani, renegotiating the Ta'af agreement, oh my God. Yani, uh, <laughs> you know, that's not... You know, winning an election is a hundred times easier yeah. <laughs> than uh, doing a lawyer jirga. Uh, you know, yeah. that must be done at some point and we have to lead up to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but come in, things are urgent. I, I like way w- to say, well, I'm, I'm not going to yes. move unless they change the Ta'af agreement. Hello, nice. It's like saying people in America want to change the electoral college. I won't vote unless you change the te- If it's not mm-hmm. going to change, you're going to sit at home and do nothing. So I like that, that if there is going to be at some point the third republic born out of October 17, it will come naturally as a result of the painful uh, reform process that I, I think Lebanese are awakening up to, that they're sort of yearning for in, in a, in a well, sense. Let me put it differently, Ronnie Yani. When I use the term third republic, uh, and I'm looking at, you know, the, the, the people let's say, the people, the economy, and the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, when we always talk about third republic, we talk about, you know, we usually think about engineering. You know, let's change the constitution. And if we only change this clause or that clause, magically everything would be great. What the third republic should mean to us is it should mean that the population of Lebanon is standing up and claiming its power yes. uh, and taking control 
of the state of the system, which it's which is you know it's it's our state, our system, right? Uh, and there are you know elections that one can you know move and organize politically and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the third republic, one should be the idea of a republic. A, a real republic where the public is in charge. Yes. Uh, not yes. a public that shows up every four years. If the guy showed up at my funeral, I gave a job to my cousin, I vote for him. Right. That, no matter what you change in the Constitution, that's not going to be. So it's a public awakening. Secondly, uh, a republic built on a, a real, uh, uh, inclusive, sustainable, economic, and social uh, 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 trajectory. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is also part of our future, has to be part of our future. Uh, and thirdly, at the constitutional level, which we haven't yet talked, there's a number of things that need to be done which don't relate to uh, uh, the changing of the Ta'af agreement. One is, as we said, administrative decentralization, which is super important. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, secondly, establishment of a Senate so that we limit the sectarian nature of the system. Keep yes. the Senate, you know, okay, you know, we want to represent the communities. They're afraid because put them in a Senate, give them authorities on sensitive matters that relate yes. to, you know, existential issues. Yes. And then you've already taken, you know, a huge step uh, uh, towards liberating uh, the idea from everything has to be sectarian. Uh, but none of it will be any good unless the people organize themselves to be a real power, not to be passive. You know, in a way, these are things that are all spelled out in 1989-1990, which you described. I mean, the Senate is an idea born out of Ta'if. It's not something people just came to today. And I just Absolutely. To, and can I ask you, though, from, from your side, why do you think that it's been three decades later that we're still trying to achieve something like that? Can we put the blame on the Syrian occupation and then the post-Syrian occupation mess the last 15 years? Or is it something that's intrinsic that we're not able to, for reasons that are maybe from within, that we're just not ready to sort of leave the comfort zone that we're familiar with? Because it's three decades is a long time to not implement something that is rather simple, a Senate that should be there. I mean, in the past, now today, we, you know, with mm-hmm. the movement, it could be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to be frank, I mean, uh, 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 you know, some of the major communities, and I'll be frank, I mean, the main Maronite Christian, you know, groups, as well as the main Sunni groups, uh, uh, were basically against the idea of, of shifting, basically, you know, of shifting of creating a Senate, because what, creating a Senate, great idea, but that means that the parliament is no longer based on a quota system, right. uh, which, and the parliament will have a tremendous authority, and uh, for the, uh, obviously, the Christians whose numbers are small, and, you know, uh, and they're not 50%, and yes. yet they have yeah. 50% of the parliament, obviously, for them, it's like a huge loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for many in the Sunni community, given that the Shiite community doesn't only have numbers, the numbers are about the same as the Sunni, but they also have an enormous army, armed and you know financed from abroad, uh, which terrifies, let's say, the Sunni community. So they wanted, you know, it's been opposition on those old, you know, sectarian concerns and sectarian worries. So, uh, and it's a very, very sensitive issue. Uh, 
uh, it will cause a lot of fears and so on. So in a way, it's, it's, uh, the protesters are going to have to persuade these politicians to let go of some authority for the first time. It's almost like a, a demand for them to kind of step back a bit from their comfort zone. And it's it's a it's a big uh, it's a big challenge because I I think and I, I agree with your sentiment that now now is the time for all of the above that it, if these things happen they should happen now. Well, look, maybe I'm saying it a bit differently. I mean, I'm saying uh, there is, the things that are that there's no obstacle to doing is organizing this tremendous awakening, organizing it into a real political power. Right. Nothing stands in the way of that. Right, uh, right. And and if if this movement is effective and all of that, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and then can contest both the parliamentary and the local elections and be a force in the country. Yes. Uh, you know, which like other movements, you know, around the world have come up from nowhere and maybe and won majorities. It can happen. And yes. the Lebanese can do it. But yeah. it takes a lot of organization. Doing constitutional reform is something that will have to happen after somebody has won something in parliament because it all has to be done in parliament. Right, so right, instead right. Of, as you say, I want to change the constitution first. You have to be in a position where yeah. it's your call and then right. you can do it. Uh, and what I'm saying, so no, we shouldn't do everything now. Uh, mm. Now we should, we should, you know, maintain tremendous pressure on this ruling class to limit the damage, as we are mm. doing. Mm-hmm. But we have to prepare. So when we say kulun yani kulun, we're ready with a replacement set, uh, and within three four years, we should we should have many new leaders. That takes a lot of work. Right. So really, it's step one: organization. That's what's really at stake yes. right now. Yeah. Yes. You know, Paul, I, I uh, want to wrap it up with. Uh, Going back to the beginning of the conversation, and you you outlined the that there there are eleven uprisings that have happened in the last ten eleven years in the Middle East, which mm-hmm. is profound, and mm-hmm. a, a population that has suffered under tremendous uh, tremendous weight, not just economically, but their own citizenship, their own identity, their own dignity has largely been crushed, and they finally broke free. And there is a, a yearning for something better in the Middle East. And this is really a, a recent phenomenon. A lot of these attempts did not achieve what protesters wanted. Maybe they achieved shades of it. Maybe certain, maybe small accomplishments were made. I mean, we, we often say it's become almost cliche now that Tunisia is that shining star. Uh, Sudan seems to be on its way to something better. But... For the most part, most part, these uh, these protests have not ushered in the type of regime I think that we kind of wanted deep down, something just that would represent us in a, in a better way and treat us with some dignity. It just didn't really reach that result yet. And but But the economic pain that has been felt throughout the region and is being felt harshly today in Lebanon is real. And that economic pain does bring about real passion on the streets and calls for regime change or reform or all of whatever it is, calls for something to to be fixed in the country. Mm-hmm. Remove the economic 
story, or let's say alleviate the economic pain, if Lebanon is to suddenly find itself in a better situation? Is it possible to see the organization, the political changes that we've been discussing on the horizon? Or is this really born out of despair, that the economic story is the central story? And without that economic pain, there isn't really a political dimension that can translate into something better. And a very good question. I mean... uh it's it i mean it, it, you look at examples today like the uae right mm-hmm. uh, or even lebanon a few years ago uh, it is the case whether it's only in our part of the world or not because china is a little bit the same mm-hmm. that in many places if the you know economy is okay and life is okay yes. uh, and people are getting along and so on uh, politics is often not their thing you know they right. don't care that much because, you know, they're not, I don't know, they're not politically, they don't care as long as their life and the country, the country is moving along fine. Mm-hmm. A lot of the Arab countries today, after the revolts of 2011, are, are like trying to market that version, uh, which is like the Chinese version and so on, that, look, uh, uh, forget about, you know, politics and democracy and so on. If we can give you enough economic development and enough... You know, if we can help you in your life, which was the old Arab approach, then let us, you know, leave politics to us. I dare say Lebanon is sort of like that. Yani, the Lebanese generally, you know, as long as their life was fine, mm. they come mm. and go. Yes. Uh, they did not revolt. Right. Uh, they elected people again and again. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and I dare say if the economy and things came back on track, which right now is very difficult to imagine, yeah. But if things were fine again in the country, I yeah, I think people would sort of go, you know, most of them would go about their business. But I think the painful realization that we have come to in Lebanon and which many populations in the Arab world have come to is that unfortunately they're related. Mm. That unless you do the hard work mm. of making sure your government is actually accountable mm. and really accountable to you, yes. Uh, if you don't get there, uh, you're you know uh, uh, you're going to be in deep economic trouble. Uh, 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 so uh, now it's not easy to transition to an accountable system. First of all, society has to change. Yes. Because like even Lebanon, okay, free country, okay, but we were not a very awakened country politically. We elected the same people again and again. So the society has to change. Right. Secondly, right. which is very difficult, you have to unseat uh, an empowered uh, oligarchy. Mm-hmm. In Lebanon, part of the oligarchy is a bit easier to unseat because unlike, you know, Qaddafi in Libya or Assad in Syria, you know, uh, I don't think, uh, not to name names, but other, put Hezbollah aside, the rest really contest elections like other people contest mm-hmm. You know, they don't have guns on their side. They don't use them in that way. So, mm-hmm. again, Hezbollah accepted. So, uh, uh, transitioning to, uh, you know, a, a functioning, accountable democratic system uh, is not easy. And, you know, it's, it's, it's unfair to judge the uprisings of the last 10 years in the Middle East because the forces ranged against them were formidable. 
Yes. When Central Europe uh, uh, called for democracy, Soviet Union had, had it was collapsing. The European Union was there with open arms. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they got help and they were welcomed. They were supported. Uh, in in the Middle East, the Gulf countries are all against. Most of the rulers are against. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. So, and these things take time. Yani, there's a great book by a Russian liberal uh, called Alexander Herzen, who wrote a book called, well, he wrote it in 1849 after the European uprisings, the European Spring of 1848. It was like yeah. the Arab Spring. All right. the cities of Europe, <laughs> democracy, because of, because of, within nine months they were all over. Right, right. It took another, you know, a hundred years for Europe to become democratic. So mm. these things hopefully won't take a hundred years. But I see what's happening in the Arab world and the Middle East is it's a long-term civilizational thing. Uh, it's yes. not, you know, one year, six months, 18 months, 24 months. It's very, very profound. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm an optimist, but uh, because I think what we're basically seeing is the empowerment of people. Uh, you know, a hundred years ago, people lived in villages, had no yeah, mobility. Yeah, yeah. And were in life has changed. And life, uh, you know, I know the Chinese are trying to control people again through technology and maybe they will succeed. But uh, we are living in, in a different age where the individual is powerful and does matter. And old systems simply don't work well. That's a great way to explain not just uh, the last, you know, few months or the last few decades, but really a century of all that has happened in our part of the world. And I, I really uh, enjoy talking to you for, for a few reasons. The first is that, you know, social distancing aside, we can still do this. <laughs> see these yes. technological developments. So that's a good thing. Alhamdulillah. Hey. And uh, we also, uh, I got the chance to see the Middle East Institute uh, a few weeks ago. It was the first time I had been back in some 15 years. I started my own curiosity in the Middle East at the Middle East Institute. So it was great to see what has happened there. And it's it's a privilege to get to speak to you as the president of Middle East Institute and as a friend from Beirut. And I uh, I hope we get to it's cross paths. It's a pleasure back. and an honor. And uh, as everybody tells you, your father was a dear friend and an exceptional man. We miss him and we uh, hope to honor his memory always. Thank you, sir. Paul, I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Ronnie. Have a, have a good day. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Ronnie Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.